good morning. My name is Brian, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we're going to be in Proverbs chapter 8, and this, the text this morning, it's, it's a bit of a, a mountaintop. It's a monumental moment in these first nine chapters of Proverbs. Some very practical things are giving way to a gloriously personal moment. You might call this the Mount of Transfiguration of the book of Proverbs. And the interpretation of this text caused the summoning of the Council of Nicaea 1,700 years ago, the hard labor study and discussion of those spirit-filled pastors and theologians gave us the Nicene Creed, which is one of the clearest and most helpful and concise declarations of the truths of God that all Christians in all place and time believe in. It's a big text, so let's be praying this morning that we can hear it clearly, because I have a hunch that we're only going to scratch the surface of it. But it's challenging to start at the top of a mountain. So let's start with some small talk. Have you ever watched The Masked Singer? It's one of those singing competition TV shows. It's kind of like celebrities got jealous that they were too famous to go on American Idol, and they came up with their own show where they wear these ridiculous, elaborate costumes, and they sing so no one knows who they are. And there's silly judges, and they try and guess, like the rest of us, who the contestants are. Sometimes it's really hard, but sometimes it's an actual singer, an actual famous, popular singer, and you're listening to this octopus sing, and you're going, I know that voice from somewhere. And the text this morning, it's kind of like that. The father has been speaking a lot in Proverbs, but he hands the mic back to Lady Wisdom, and as you listen to her speak, as spirit-filled Christians, you should probably start thinking, I know that voice from somewhere. So let's listen to the text this morning with that type of attention. Let's go ahead and stand together as we read Proverbs 8. I'm going to read all of Proverbs chapter 8. It says this, Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? On the heights beside the way, at the crossroads, she takes her stand. Beside the gates in front of the town, at the entrance of the portals, she cries aloud, To you, O men, I call. And my cry is to the children of man. O oh, simple ones, learn prudence. O oh, fools, learn sense. Hear, for I will speak noble things, and from my lips will come what is right, for my mouth will utter truth. Wickedness is an abomination to my lips. All the words of my mouth are righteous. There is nothing twisted or crooked in them. They are all straight to him who understands and write to those who find knowledge. Take my instruction instead of silver and knowledge rather than choice gold, for wisdom is better than jewels, and all that you may desire cannot compare with her. I, wisdom, dwell with prudence, and I find knowledge and discretion. The fear of the Lord is hatred of evil, pride and arrogance, and the way of evil and perverted speech I hate. I have counsel and sound wisdom. I have insight. I have strength. By me, kings reign, and rulers decree what is just. By me, princes rule, and nobles, all who govern justly. 
I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. Riches and honor are with me, enduring wealth and righteousness. My fruit is better than gold, even fine gold, and my yield than choice silver. I walk in the way of righteousness and the paths of justice, granting an inheritance to those who love me and filling their treasuries. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no springs abounding with water, before the mountains had been shaped, before the hills, I was brought forth. Before he had made the earth with its fields or the dust or the first of the dust of the world. When he established the heavens, I was there. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, when he made firm the skies above, when he established the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters might not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, then I was beside him like a master workman. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing before him always, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and delighting in the children of man. And now, O oh sons, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Hear instruction and be wise and do not neglect it. Blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors. For whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who fails to find me injures himself. All who hate me love death. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Bountiful Lord, the unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. Turn to us and be gracious as is your way with those who love your name. Help us sit at the feet of the one thing needed, beholding wondrous things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. The big idea for the text this morning is listen to wisdom. A giver of life. Love her, seek her, find her, keep her. We're going to look first at the first 21 verses. Wisdom is the affluent advisor. And then 22 through 31, wisdom is the ancient architect. And then last, what she asks of us to give our affectionate attention in that last chunk, verses 32 through 36. So first, wisdom is the affluent advisor. So over the past few chapters in Proverbs, the father's been warning us, his sons, against different dangers and pitfalls along the path of life. Specifically, the father's been painting a picture of a woman who appears good and pleasant, whose words are smooth and seem right, whose ways seem to lead to flourishing and fulfillment, but in listening to her and in following her leads to death and destruction. It's sobering and scary to know that something that can seem so right can be so wrong. So chapter eight begins, and the father is asking, does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? And the answer is yes. 
She's speaking clearly and loudly up on the tall buildings for all to hear as you pass through all of life's paths at the gate where all of your decisions in life are made. There she is speaking clearly. And then Lady Wisdom takes over. And these are now her words, starting in verse 4. To you, O men, I call. And my cry is to the children of mankind. Wisdom speaks to all humans at all times. All are without excuse for not listening to her voice. She speaks the capital T, untwisted truth. All her words are worthy and righteous. Her instruction ought to be taken instead of silver. And wisdom herself, in verse 11, wisdom is better than jewels. And all that you may desire cannot compare with her. You desire many good things in life, but if you put them all on a scale, a balance, all the riches, all the good things of life on one side, wisdom is saying that she would outweigh them all. Therefore, if you have a choice, if you could only take one prize out of the prize bin, you should take wisdom over all other good things in this life you desire. And we see that there's a problem here, right? It's great that wisdom is speaking truth for all to hear, but the problem is I don't always hear it rightly. Sometimes the truth just doesn't seem true to me. Verse 8, wisdom acknowledges that her words are straight to him who understands. Sometimes it seems like I just don't understand. Sometimes it seems like the scale in my heart is a little off. Like all the things I desire just seem to outweigh what wisdom has to say. Like if I could have riches or wisdom, I'd take the gold and figure out wisdom later. If you're familiar with Proverbs, you know that an unjust scale is an abomination to the Lord. God loves the truth and the accurate knowledge of it, but I lack understanding. Something is broken in me. It's not wisdom's fault. It's my eyes and my heart that are faulty. The good news is that wisdom is calling out to you. She is not for the wise only who understand. But verse 5, O simple ones, learn prudence. O fools, learn sense. The simple are those who are overly trusting of others. Someone tells you something and you believe them, and then another comes and says something different and you believe them. Simple or gullible, naive, being blown through life like a leaf, following the latest influencer that claims to be right and good and true. The fools laugh at the simple because fools don't struggle with being overly trusting of others. Fools are overly trusting of themselves. Fools walk into a room and assume they are right without question. Fools hate being corrected in Proverbs because what good reason would you ever have to correct me? I'm never wrong. Both the simple and fools lack sense and understanding to hear wisdom rightly. For the simple, wisdom is just one of many voices in this world that might work for a while. For the fool, wisdom is another voice challenging me, but I'm wise in my own eyes. I don't need you. Both the simple and foolish keep wisdom at arm's length and are thus on a path to destruction. But wisdom is calling even to the simple and fools. Can you hear her? Can you hear that you need help? 
She's not giving up on you. She's coming for you to help if you'll only admit that you need it and receive it. Wisdom dwells with prudence. They're roommates. Prudence is the ability to rightly reason this world, to accurately see how things work. We all need this. Wisdom has it, and so she rightly hates evil because she sees right through the seductive appearance of evil and hates it for what it is. She has this insight, and she's offering it to you. More than that, she has strength. This is what the sons of the king of Israel need to rule well as future kings. To say and do what is just and right, they need to accurately know, understand what is right and good and true, and they need to have the strength to actually do what is right and good and true. Overcoming all of the obstacles in life and refraining from the temptations to stray from it. This is what we all need as sons of the Father in heaven. We need help seeing what is right and good and true in life, and we need strength to do it. You feel this need, right? You, you want this. I know that you do. How, how do we get it? Verse 17, let it wash over you. Verse 17, wisdom says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. So love her. Desire her. Know that you lack her and draw near. Know that she is valuable. Know that you need her and seek her. Trust her. Don't be overly trusting of others. Don't be overly trusting of yourself. Seek out capital W wisdom. Love her and draw near. Verse 18, she has enduring wealth and righteousness. Her fruit, her yield, when they're given time to grow and blossom and flourish, are better than gold, even the best gold. She walks in the way of righteousness and the paths of justice where all humans are supposed to be walking. And those who seek her find her there and walk with her and find their treasuries filled, granted her inheritance simply for loving her and seeking her. Can you hear the voice of wisdom? Do you recognize her voice? Who, who is this? She's about to take off the mask and reveal her true identity, but can you tell who it is yet? Who is this word of truth who comes alongside fools, claiming that hearing her words will make you filthy rich in life, who can help you live righteously and justly, who promises an imperishable inheritance and says that this is available to all who know her and love her and seek her. Do you know that voice? Go ahead and read through in your Bible verses 22 through 31. Just real quick, scan through them again. So we move to the second point. Wisdom is the affluent advisor, and then wisdom is the ancient architect. So we see clearly here in these verses that wisdom is a person, a powerful person who participated in creation and always existed. Wisdom is not 
merely a personified attribute. Lady Wisdom is singing too clearly now. We don't even need her to take off the mask. We know who this is. This is Jesus Christ, Son of God. Jesus is the wisdom of God. This might seem foreign to us as a, as a name or a title, but it's not foreign to the Bible. We know from the gospel accounts that Jesus grew in wisdom, and people were often astonished at his wisdom. Colossians 2 tells us that it's not just that he grew in it, but all the treasuries of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Jesus. He didn't just gain a bunch of it. He has all of it. It's all in him. 1 Corinthians 1 tells us that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. In Luke chapter 11, in the middle of a conversation with lawyers and Pharisees, the wise of this age, Luke quotes Jesus, but instead of saying, Jesus said, he says, the wisdom of God said, directly calling Jesus the wisdom of God. And so in the scriptures, they're not shy about calling Jesus the wisdom of God, but we might be shy about it in this passage in Proverbs 8, because you might read Proverbs 8 here and say, well, we should be careful because it seems like wisdom was created by God here. And we know Jesus is not created, he's God, so it's probably safer to not say it's Jesus. And while I'm, I'm generally in life a big fan of being cautious, I think we can take courage here and, and boldly embrace the fact that Lady Wisdom wants us to know that she is in fact Jesus Christ, and Jesus wants us to know that the whole Bible is about him. So to go here, we need to understand what this is saying. The first half of this section, verses 22 through 26, has a clear distinction from the second half in terms of time. So the emphasis of verses 22 through 26 is before, at the beginning, before the beginning even. Before there was anything created, before the mountains or hills or depths or springs, before the earth and its rotation or its revolution around the sun or our seasons or months or days or hours, before time itself. So this is our setting before creation. We look at the verbs, too, in verse 22, that word possessed in 22. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work or his ways that word possessed is translated elsewhere as brought forth or obtained, as when Eve said that she had obtained a child with the help of the Lord. The ESV footnote tells you it could be translated as fathered. This is close to created, but the emphasis is not that wisdom was created, but procreated. Similarly, in verses 24 and 25, the ESV says wisdom is brought forth. Some other translations simply say wisdom was born in verses 24 and 5 because this word invokes birth pains of bringing forth a child. So verses 22 through 26 are trying to tell us that wisdom is brought forth or born before the beginning, before time. Wisdom is procreated before creation. This seems confusing, and that's, that's okay. The tension that you're feeling is a doctrine that theologians call eternal generation, um, which simply means that Jesus, the Son of God, is eternally generated or brought forth, born of, fathered by the Father. The Son is eternally fathered by the Father, not with the earthly limitations we have, where I father a child, 
but the mother did most of the work, and my kids are kind of like me, but not completely like me. This is why we use the word generated. Or there's an old word that we've forgotten, the word begotten, which is a synonym with these words generated or fathered, begotten in the divine sense. And you actually believe this if you are a Christian. So the Nicene Creed lays it out nicely, which all Christians believe. So we have the Nicene Creed. It says, I believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of the Father before all time, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not created, of the same essence as the Father. Through him, all things were made. The creed goes on to say, of course, that Jesus was born of Mary, taking on human flesh at a specific point in time on this earth, but he is begotten from the Father outside of time, in eternity. That's why he's called the Son. The Son is always from the Father. Matthew Barrett, in his book Simply Trinity, he says, he says this, unlike human generation, the Son's generation is eternal. There never was a time when the Son was not, nor ever a time when the Son was not from the Father. Or as fathers like Gregory of Nyssa like to say, there is no sometime for the Son because he was not generated in time. He exists by generation indeed, but nevertheless, he never begins to exist. It's not as if God the Son did not exist, but then came into existence at a point in time created by the Father and therefore after the Father. That describes how generation works in our human existence, but it cannot depict the Son's generation. The generation of the Son does not fall within time any more than the creation was before time. Everlasting in nature, there never was a time when the Son was not begotten from the Father. If this is making you feel dizzy, that's okay. One of my children likes to say when she thinks of God, always existing, it makes her mind feel funny, and it's normal. I don't expect us to, to master this, but to, to grasp it enough to marvel at it this morning. Sometimes my kids like to measure the bigness of a tree by seeing whether or not their dad can get his arms around it. So I find myself on hikes occasionally hugging trees for their research purposes and curiosity, and if, if my hands don't touch, we all go, Whoa, that's a huge tree. We have no idea how big it actually is, but we've grasped it as best we can and we marvel at it. So let's do that with eternal generation this morning. I hope you can grasp enough of seeing how the Son being eternally begotten of the Father makes Proverbs 8 actually read pretty naturally. Additionally, it sounds a lot like a couple of New Testament passages we have of Jesus being involved before and during creation. So John 1. In the beginning was the Word. John is introducing Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life. And the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then Colossians 1, which we read part of earlier, of Jesus, 
Paul says, he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authority. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things <clears throat> hold together. So Jesus is eternally the Son begotten from the Father, light of light, true God of true God. He is eternally the word of the voice of God that is always speaking. He is eternally the image of the invisible God. He is eternally the radiance of the glory of the Lord. He is eternally the wisdom of God. There was never a time when God was without his wisdom. Wisdom is eternally coming forth from the Father as the Son is always begotten from his Father. And so, looking now at verses 27 through 31, the, the second half, wisdom was there. When the heavens and the lofty skies were established and made firm, wisdom was there when the seas, the waters of chaos, were given their limits, their boundaries to not transgress and overcome the land. Wisdom was there when the foundations of the earth were marked out. Wisdom was with God. Wisdom was God. Wisdom was in the beginning with God like a master workman, an architect, a craftsman without wisdom was not anything made that was made, and wisdom has order, not chaos. Wisdom has clear lines and foundations. Wisdom is firm and fixed. But somehow, breaking some of our categories, wisdom is calculated but not cold. Look at verses 30 and 31. Wisdom is delighting and rejoicing. You could translate this laughing and dancing. Wisdom is thoroughly enjoying the created order. Loving the Lord and loving creation, even the humans who inhabit it. Especially the humans who inhabit it. Very good wisdom cheers. Wisdom is, is almost childlike the Lord. I'd like us to just sit here for a moment in what seems like a contradiction in our day and age. Just rest. See, our, our world likes to say that you cannot have true life within limits. But I'm starting to think that the world might not know the wisdom of God. The wisdom of God abounds with both fixed foundations and flourishing. The wisdom of God overflows with lines of limitations and love and laughter. The wisdom of God defines and designs life, and the wisdom of God delights in life. The wisdom of God draws a line for the sea because God is not a God of chaos, but of peace. And a peace that often surpasses our understanding in this age. Several months ago, I was at the Schuster Center downtown Dayton here to hear the Dayton Philharmonic Orchestra perform some pieces. I'm not super into classical music yet, but I realized one day that I live five minutes from this world-class venue and I just want to try and behold the beauty that goes over my head and, and maybe some crumbs will fall from the table and I can be nourished, right? So I was there, and let me tell you, these, these people there, they're pretty old-fashioned. They're pretty, pretty backwards. You go in, and up front and center is what they call a stage. 
but it, it seems more like a cage. There's all these humans on it on display, and these humans have been trained from childhood to be proficient on different instruments, spent hours upon hours of their lives working on learning how to play this instrument precisely how it was made to be played, not however they want to play it. And this evening, they all have pieces of paper that tell them exactly what they can and cannot play. They have to play this note for this long and this loud and with this expression and then the next one and then the next and then they have to stop playing and just sit there for a while while others play. They have to do exactly what the instructions on the page say and they're all sitting there wearing the exact same black clothes when out walks this taskmaster guy they call a conductor, right? He's, he's the worst because he says, he says you're not allowed to play until he says so. And he says you have to stop playing when he says to stop. He alone has the full score, which shows where all the notes go. No one else gets to see it. It's a really oppressive place. I should probably stop supporting the arts. It's very restricting of human flourishing. But something about this place, something there is just so beautiful. And everyone up there just seems so full of, of life. And they seem to be enjoying it. And on this evening I was there, it happened to be the world premiere of a new symphony. It was written and then delayed because of COVID. And then this evening I was there, happened to be the first time that it was publicly performed anywhere ever in the world. And the, the conductor tells them to get ready, and then they start, because they have to. And sometimes just a few are playing, and the rest are waiting. And then, and then sometimes they're all playing together, but playing different notes that work together. And, and there are themes that repeat, and then little variations off the theme. There's tension that builds, and then resolution that is beautiful. There's a flurry at the finale, and then it ends, and we all applaud. We're all cheering. And the conductor of the Dayton Philharmonic, he's a, a cheery little man, and he just bobs around the stage, bowing and clapping and delighting in the whole thing. He makes the cello players stand up, and we clap for them. And then he bounces over to the percussion section. We remember that they did that thing, and we clap for them. Then the trumpets, and he's just rejoicing in it all. And then as he's doing this, a man sneaks out on the stage. His suit, his suit is way too big. Like they just told him backstage he needed to wear a suit and he borrowed one. His hair is gray and wild. His beard is disheveled. He looks like the only thing in his life that he's given any order to is the notes on all the pages of the different parts. He's the composer. and He walks out and he's clapping. He's bowing his thanks to the conductor. The conductor grabs his hands. They're exalting together. They're, they're pumping their fists. They bow to the orchestra. They cheer for us for being there. Just joy and delight all the way around. Now, in real life, in this story, I'm sitting in the back row of the second balcony, way, way far away. But in this illustration, where are the humans? based on Proverbs 8. Where, where are the humans? We're on the stage, right? Angels are peering to long in. Humans are on the stage, simply playing instruments, how they're designed to be played, simply following the instructions on the sheet music, simply following the conductor's lead, and being delighted in and rejoiced in and told to stand and bow at the end. Very good, the wisdom of God says at the beginning. Well done, he says at the end. The wisdom of God delights in the children of man 
because he has beautiful plans. And we need this, right? We need to know that God loves us and wants us and is speaking to us and wants to show us the way because if I can be honest, doesn't life in this world feel pretty overwhelming and confusing sometimes? Do you ever feel like being a human is kind of like being a, a child with a cello? A cello in one hand and sheet music in the other. I don't know what to do with these things. What's a child going to do with a cello? He's going to ride it like a horse, right? He's going to make a paper airplane out of sheet music. We don't know what to do. What am I supposed to do with my life? I mean, I was just born one day into this world that's existed for centuries before me. I have a body. Parts of it work right. Parts of it don't. What am I supposed to do with it? I get hungry. And I eat food, but what food should I eat? And I need money to get food. And now, what do I do with my money? There's a whole bunch of things you should do with your money. How do I get money? I work, but I hate working. But then I change jobs, and I love working. I work all the time, and now I'm exhausted. Why do I have to sleep every night? And then there's these people all around me, and sometimes, sometimes they, they say things to me, or they do things around me, and I never want to be around a human again. Sometimes they say things to me, and I feel like a million bucks. Sometimes I need them, sometimes I hate them, sometimes I love them. What am I supposed to do with this life I've been given, born in this busy world? I feel like a child with a cello. I need help. Do you see how blessed you are that the wisdom of God is speaking to you? The wisdom of God has not abandoned you. The wisdom of God is calling out to you. The wisdom of God wants you to listen because the wisdom of God wants you to flourish and thrive as a human in this world. You need help and you're going to listen to someone. You can ultimately trust in and listen to others or yourself for how a human ought to live in this world or you can trust in and listen to the wisdom of God who was there when everything was made and who rejoices and delights in your presence on this earth. Listen to wisdom giver of life. Moving now to point three. Go ahead and look at verses 32 through 36 in your Bibles. Wisdom deserves our affectionate attention. Blessed, happy, flourishing are those who keep wisdom's ways, who listen to wisdom. It might seem frustrating that, that listening is the main application in this chapter. And, and, and listening leads to keeping and walking in ways of righteousness and justice. And after next Sunday, we'll spend the rest of the summer going through different topics and proverbs, and it will feel more practical. But yes, the application today is to listen to wisdom, giver of life. The call here is to learn to actively listen to all that wisdom says instead of all the other voices or ourselves. Now, we can get a little more specific. Verse 34, how do we listen? Watch and wait. It even alliterates for us, right? Does that make it more practical for you? How do you listen? You watch and wait. Last week, I had a bunch of stuff in my front yard. And I needed to put it into my garage at the back of my house. It was going to take me several trips, so I went 
to pick up an armful, and when I picked it up, I, I looked across the street, and on the porch of the house across the street, a man was standing there. And I know the man who lives in this house, it was not that man, so stranger danger, I'm, I'm on alert here, I see him standing there, and I, I take these things back to my garage, it takes me a minute, I, I come back up for another one, he's just still standing there on the porch next to the door. He looks at the door, he looks up at the sky, he looks back at the door, I take another trip back to the garage, I come back, he's still standing there, looking at the door, he looks at me, looks back at the door, I take another load and come back, still there, standing staring. I need to move my van around to the garage. So I get in, and I get in, and I look over, and the door to the house finally opens. The owner comes out, and the guy on the porch lights up, comes to life, and they start talking. Now, I have a question for you. It's going to sound like a silly question, but it's, it's serious. Was the man on that porch doing nothing? Or was he doing something. Was the man on that porch doing nothing? Or was he doing something? The way we answer this question will probably reveal how willing and able we are to apply texts like this in our, in our busy lives. Was that man just standing there doing nothing while life passed him by? I got a lot done in that five minutes. Was that man wasting his time? I've lived in my house for a year and a half now. I've been outside a lot, done a lot of work in the yard. I've said hi to the man who lives in that house across the street. But I've never once stood on that porch watching and waiting outside his door. Why is that? Because I've never tried to find him. I know where to find him, but I've never seen a need to seek him out. All who fail to find wisdom injure themselves. All who hate the wisdom of God love death. It ends rather harshly, chapter 8. But earlier in verse 17, wisdom said that she loves all who love her and those who seek her diligently find her. Jesus similarly said in John 6, 37, whoever comes to me I will never cast out. Those who fail to find the wisdom of God are those who never seek. Those who never see the need to seek. I'm good on my own. I hear you calling out all around me in creation and in the scriptures, but I'm good. I've got the people I trust for how to navigate life. I've, I've got my sense of how life works. I'm good. You can stop calling out. Wisdom is the giver of life. So to not need the wisdom of God is to love being cut off from life, your origin and source. To not seek the wisdom of God is to prefer and to claim to be unoriginated of myself, of the world. And that leaves you disconnected from life himself and a lover of death. The wisdom of God is calling out. Listen and live. Deny and die. Can you see why listening is applicable to your life? In Luke chapter 10, the wisdom of God in the flesh stops by the home of Mary and Martha. 
And Mary has the audacity to sit and seemingly do nothing right in front of his face while he speaks. Martha is too busy doing everything to hear the teaching of the wisdom of God. She is anxious and angry, and she accuses the wisdom of God of not caring about her specific situation. Practically help me, she cries. She interrupts the wisdom of God who is teaching in her living room to accuse him of not caring, of not doing anything. So distracted is she by the doing of everything. Nevertheless, wisdom loves Martha. So when her folly bubbles up in busyness, he calls out to her to listen to him, the one thing needed. On the last day, Matthew 7, Jesus says that many will come to him saying, Lord, Lord, and listing off all the things they did. But Jesus says he will declare to them, I never knew you. And then Jesus wraps up the Sermon on the Mount for human flourishing. Matthew 7, 24, he says, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. We must be doers for sure, but we must be hearers first, or we will become so busy doing what all the voices say to do that we will no longer know his voice. John 5, 24 through 26 says, Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. To all who hear his voice, your eternal life has begun already. Jesus says that to know him, the eternally begotten Son of the Father, is eternal life. So keep listening. He knows, he knows how life works best. So how do we listen? Two ways. First, we listen to wisdom in, in general revelation. That, that's in the text here, some general revelation. It's just creation, right? It's what God's made. The heavens declare the glory of God. All of creation is displaying the great power and plenty of God. Listening to wisdom in creation reminds us that God knows how life works best. So some of you are, are doing this, or you're going to do it whether I ask you to or not. So go on vacation. Stand on the beach. Let the tide tickle your toes. Stand on the line that wisdom drew, not allowing the waters of chaos to cross. Look out 
On the mighty sea, from the land you inhabit, of children of man, ask yourself, is it not better this way? Is it not better and more beautiful when creation listens to wisdom? We can't all afford to go on vacations. That's fine. Go outside in the evening. Find a place where the land meets the line of the sky, right? Watch and wait while the earth slowly turns to let the sun light up that line and then exult in the sunset. Listen to wisdom. Sing how beautiful it is when creation keeps her ways. Plant a garden. Watch the plants seemingly do nothing for months, wasting their time basking in the sun and then be nourished by their fruit in the harvest. Adore some flowers. They're so beautiful. And all they did was grow where they're planted. Go on a hike in the woods. Do you see all the dead seeds? Go on a scavenger hunt in in a forest. Can you spot any dead seeds? They rose again. We call them trees. Can you see them? Wisdom is speaking. Listen to the giver of life. This is real application for your life, for your soul. Don't gloss over this. For the love of God, go outside and listen with your eyes. Listen to God revealing himself to you all around. Behold the beautiful lines wisdom has drawn. Rest in how good it is to listen to wisdom, then open the Bible and seek wisdom for yourself. We listen to wisdom in special revelation. That's the Bible. Open the Bible and listen to the Christ. Without Scripture, we only see the power and the the plans of God in creation, which we need. But we cannot see his grace in redemption. But we have the Scriptures. And all The scriptures are revealing Jesus to us, and Jesus is revealing God to us. And in the gospel, Jesus is revealing God to us as our Father, the eternally begotten Son of the Father, the radiance of the glory, the image of the invisible, the wisdom of God. 1 Corinthians 1 says this. Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. God shows what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Like Jews and Greeks who are humans, we want signs of power and practical plans of wisdom. We are attracted to and listen to those in this world who show off their flashy power and plans, but the wisdom of God gives us a dead man. The architect of all life, has seen 
what you've done with yours. He sees how you've crumpled up the sheet music and made a mess of your cello, listening to other conductors, doing whatever you think is right. And, and in the incarnation of the wisdom of God, the ancient architect, Jesus Christ, has come right into the room, face to face with you, not to berate you or destroy you or give your life to someone who will do better with it, but to reap the destruction and death that you have sown in his crucified death on the cross. He's taken a path that looks like defeat to rise up to new life for you, sharing the spirit of his eternal sonship with you. So come, simpletons and fools, come as a screw-up and find yourself in Christ, received as a celebrated son, the imperishable inheritance. The favor of the Lord is yours. We all get to be apprentices of the architect Jesus, as our good older brother, he wants to show you how to live. Are you overwhelmed by the seas of chaos and confusion in this world? They threaten to overtake you. Behold the wisdom of God. Walking on the waters, calming the storm, turning the jugs into wine, he is the Lord of order and peace. Are you overwhelmed by the trials of life on the land? The lack of food, sickness of body, rejection of men, impending death. Look at the wisdom of God, healing the sick, multiplying bread, pulling resurrection out of the tomb. He is the Lord of life. Are you overwhelmed because the heavens seem too high, the ways of God too lofty, the righteous life for you, too far gone. Behold the wisdom of God ascending to heaven, sitting down to intercede for you until he returns in the same way he came. The wisdom of God is the word that upholds it all. And he delights in upholding it for you. So let him hold it up. Build on his rock don't transgress his commands. Watch and wait at his feet. Listen. Read the Bible in the morning. Come to church. Spend time with spirit-filled one another's here. Sometimes it's dry. It's like watching paint dry. I, I get it. But it's, it's worth it. And where else are we going to go? The wisdom of God has the words of eternal life. You've started to see through the ways of this world, right? The wisdom of God alone knows how all this works, and the wisdom of God is our example in this real life, asking us to follow him and live like him. I'm going to end with one more story from uh, my time at the symphony, and then you'll have heard all two of my stories from the symphony. I'll have to go get some more. Last month, we went with some friends to hear uh, Beethoven, he couldn't be there himself, 
but there was, there was a really good cover band, and they were going to play one of the symphonies, and Beethoven was the headliner, but they, they usually play a few pieces before it. When we got there, I noticed in the program a picture of a kid holding a cello, and it said he was the Dayton Philharmonic Young Artist of the Year or something like that. I didn't really care. I kind of rolled my eyes, to be honest. He looked like he might be a kid from uh, Stiver's School for the Arts here in Dayton. I'm sure he showed promise. Sure, he had potential, and we need to encourage the next generation and all that. I, I was just, I was a little annoyed. I had come for the power and the plans of Beethoven. I, I wasn't looking forward to sitting through some kid who was, who was lucky to be on that stage. Well, he came out for his cello concerto that featured him. He had a little personal stage on the stage that helped us see him and, and hear him better as he played with the whole orchestra. And as soon as he began playing, I realized how wrong I was. He was not some kid lucky to be on this stage. We were lucky to have him in Dayton, Ohio. The conductor told us later that that, that cellist was performing at the Schuster in Dayton, Ohio that, that night instead of attending the graduation ceremony for his master's degree from Juilliard in, in New York City that very night. He's played with orchestras throughout the world and won several awards. He was masterful. It was stunning to hear him play this cello concerto with the other members of the orchestra. This might not come as a surprise to you, but I don't, I don't love giving standing ovations, right? I, I want it to mean something, like from, from in me, not just the peer pressure of everyone else. I'm a little slow sometimes, but this was a no-brainer. Everyone was on their feet cheering, clapping and clapping. People are wiping tears from their eyes. They don't even know why. The orchestra is cheering. He's bowing, and then he, he walks off the stage. We keep, we keep clapping. It slows down a little because it's, it's strange. You know, we're, we're cheering for a man who's in the building, but he's left the room. Christian life feels like that sometimes, doesn't it? So we're, we're still plotting, but we're slowing down. But then the members of the orchestra, they start stomping their feet on the ground. They have their hands full. It's hard to clap. So they're stomping their feet. And so we start clapping more because something is happening. And then the cello player bursts back out on the stage and we all cheer again. He sits down, and we all sit down. We shut up. He, he sets his bow down on his lap, and he puts his two bare hands on the neck of the cello. And it's 2,000 people in the Schuster Center, 2,000 people holding their breath. Nobody wants to miss a single note. He starts in quietly at first, and he picks up his bow. We're all leaning in and, and loving it. I can't take my eyes off of him, but my wife... My wife sneaks a peek at the other cello players. There's like six of them or so, I don't, I don't know. But these are, these are the best cellos in the greater Dayton area, right? They're in the Dayton Philharmonic. And what are they doing? They're just sitting there, seemingly doing nothing. Their cellos are at rest on their arms. Their bows relaxed in their laps, sitting and doing nothing with the biggest smiles on their faces. 
They're beaming, leaning in, eating it up. I bet they've never loved being a cello player more than that moment. They have a front row seat to watch a master workman show us all how a cello is meant to be played. Guys, we, we all have front row seats, right? The wisdom of God took on flesh and dwelt among us, and, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God. But the only begotten God, who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. We all have front row seats. So let's listen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We thank you for your word. We pray that you would gift us understanding that we might know wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.